0: Please find 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Before we begin, though, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, please do help us to uh, be attentive to your word and receptive to it. Please help me to serve your people well. Let your the truth of your word, the truth about you and who you are and what you mean for us, how how you've designed us to be. Uh, Let it sink in to our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, our way of feeling, our way of approaching our lives and our relationships. Let it transform us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to preach through books. I feel like that's the way the Lord laid out scripture, and we don't need to impose some other format on it. We can just go with the way God has given it to us and preaching through books gives me the opportunity to preach all kinds of different passages, uh, some of which I would never select to preach on my own, uh, which keeps it very exciting for me and hopefully for you as well. This passage, 1 Corinthians 7, the beginning of it may seem like a strange topic for me to be preaching just on a random Sunday in May to you, but it is rich with instruction and direction. And I will give you a 100% guarantee at the outset, before we even begin, I guarantee that this passage addresses something that affects you. I guarantee that it addresses something that affects you either directly, or it affects you because someone that you care deeply about is affected by what this passage is about, or it affects you because people in your community, your family, your neighborhood, your co-workers are affected by it, and absolutely because our culture and our greater community is affected by it. So the topic is sexual temptation. The passage is 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 through 7, and we'll begin just by reading through the passage before we walk through it together in a more detailed way. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God—one of one kind and one of another. So the First Corinthians, the, this letter written to the Christians in the city of Corinth, and these Christians had a very particular issue that Paul is addressing here in this section of the letter. It's a very singular issue. They were overreacting to an, a sexually unhinged culture. The Corinthian culture was not that much unlike what we experience today. It was sexually unhinged. They, there were no universally accepted morals guiding and tethering their sexual ethics. And so the Christians in Corinth, much like we do today, had to figure out how to cope with living in this society. And in this case, it seems that they overcorrected, They overcorrected and were celebrating and promoting sexual abstinence, even within marriage. So we're used to abstinence when we think of sex education. We're used to the idea of abstinence when we think about before marriage. They were actually promoting it within marriage. It seems like in their letter to Paul, they had written a letter to Paul that he was responding to here, that they had included this sort of a slogan, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, it says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So let's see Paul's response in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The way he responds sort of implies, yes, there's some truth to that slogan, there's some truth to that sentiment, That, in a sense, at times, in some situations, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But, that's how he begins his response. But, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Basically, what he's saying is, you have failed to respect the danger of sexual temptation. You have failed to take into account how vulnerable you are to sexual temptation. In promoting abstinence, even within marriage, you're undermining marital intimacy. And in undermining marital intimacy, you're making yourselves more vulnerable to sexual temptation. And this had borne itself out, if you remember last summer when we were in 1 Corinthians, they had all kinds of sexual sin going on in the church very gross and extreme sexual sin, including an instance of incest and people visiting prostitutes, and this was within the church culture. So here they are with these strange two realities where they're so pure that they're not going to touch a woman even within marriage, and yet they're succumbing to all these sexual sins that uh, maybe, maybe even some in the culture who aren't Christians would have thought that's going too far. It's sort of like... Going on a crash diet. You know, somebody who sees they have a problem with their eating. No, I know I'm overweight. I know I can't seem to control what I eat. I'm tired of it. So I'm just not going to eat anything. I'm not going to eat anything. I'm just going to drink water, maybe a little lemon in it, and that's it. And so you wake up the first day of your new diet, your new resolved stance against food you're not going to eat, and you stay strong through breakfast and you don't eat anything. Around 10.30, your stomach starts gurgling, but you stay strong and you're resolved. And then by 10.45, you're scooping ice cream up with a stick of butter. Because all reason has left your mind. You don't even care anymore about any restraints. You're so hungry. That seems to be sort of what was going on in the Corinthian church. They came up with this standard of sexual purity in response to the sexual impurity of the culture that had no roots in Scripture or truth, it was just arbitrary, they thought this would be a good idea, and it was instead damaging them, making them more vulnerable. Paul's trying to address this. Now, we don't promote abstinence within marriage, so you might wonder, what does this text of Scripture have to do with me? Well, that's true, we don't. that's not an issue for us. I don't need to correct that misinterpretation, this, that misunderstanding with you that abstinence within marriage is not a good idea. But what is common with us and these Christians is the nature of sexual temptation. All humans have the capacity to be vulnerable to sexual temptation. And just like them, we live in a culture where sexual immorality is readily available to us. In fact, our culture probably is more dangerous in regard to sexual temptation than their culture. Because we have infinite more capacity for it due to technology. We all, most of us, carry around with us windows into the whole world. And through these windows, through these screens, through these portals, we're able to access infinite content of sexually immoral and illicit material. Infinite extremes of it. We have infinitely greater capacity for hiddenness and anonymity in it. You know, in their day, they would have had to have physically gone and engage with another person somewhere, somehow, physically, where they might be seen, they might be caught, they might gain a reputation. But in our day, we're able to do it all completely in secret if we want to. And so I think we may be more vulnerable to these temptations than they were. This is why I guarantee you 100% that what Paul addresses here has to do with you. If it doesn't have to do with you directly, because maybe you're not in a season of life where this is a particular issue for you, I guarantee somebody you care about does struggle with this. Maybe your children, your grandchildren, nieces, nephews, maybe your younger brothers and sisters in Christ that you're praying for, seeking to mentor, may have an opportunity to provide counsel. So this is important for each and every one of us, regardless of life stage, marital status. This is important. So let's look again at just the logic of his response in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Because of this temptation, each man, each woman should have a wife have a husband. Now, I think he's getting close to an idea he's going to revisit in a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. He's talking about temptation again, and he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. With the temptation... Our faithful God, who loves us, will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, God loves us. He he doesn't allow us to sit under unendurable temptation without providing for us a way of escape from that temptation. So, any temptation you may face, it may not have anything to do with sexual sin, any temptation. Christian, you can look around and I guarantee God has provided you a way of escape. When it comes to sexual temptation, one of the largest escape hatches that God has designed is marriage and marital intimacy. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Marital intimacy is one of the largest escape hatches that God has designed into the fabric of humanity to guard us against sexual immorality. Now, in the next two verses, he sort of outlines what marital intimacy should look like according to God's design. This is what it should look like, verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. He's using legal terms here. Terms about duty and authority. These are terms in the same world if you were to morph them into our day same languages like liability or phrases like power of attorney. It's very legal the tone he's striking here as he talks about marital intimacy. So let's look at each verse in turn. Verse 3 The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. The husband should fulfill his, in this sense, legal duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Different translations say it in different ways, but in a sense, spouses are legally, before God, obligated to fulfill their marital duty to one another to give each other their conjugal rights, to render due benevolence, that's how the King James puts it, to one another, to fulfill marital responsibility, to satisfy each other's needs. And then verse 4 explains why this is the case. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This word authority has to do with delegated power. It's the same word that the Bible uses for rulers who demonstrate control and power and authority over a group of people. The idea is that upon the wedding, upon the covenant of marriage being sealed, there's an exchange of authority and ownership. The wife exchanges the ownership and authority of her body over to the husband, and the husband exchanges and gives over his authority over his body to the wife, and they no longer hold on to their own authority over their bodies, but instead they hold authority for each other's bodies. They relinquish their autonomy as they say their vows. They, in essence, say, I entrust you with all authority over my physical needs. And I assume before God and these witnesses responsibility for your physical needs. Paul says this in another way in Ephesians 5, verses 28 through 30. As he talks about marriage, he says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So when the husband sees the wife, he sees his own flesh, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. He sees his own body. And when the wife sees the husband, she sees her own flesh of her flesh, bone of her bones, her own body. So in a healthy marriage, the spouses are asking themselves all the time, what does she need? How can I care for him? How can I serve her? How can I protect and cherish him? In a healthy marriage, there's never demanding or taking. Nothing quenches the flame of of godly marital intimacy quicker than demands and taking. It's all fueled by generosity and giving and selflessness. Never demanding or taking, always giving and serving— it's about generosity, mutual submission, and intentionality, which brings us to verse 5, where Paul describes sort of the practical application of the, these truths for these Christians in Corinth. He writes, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here again, that word deprive is more legal language. It's basically do not defraud one another. Do not take from each other what is rightfully theirs. There's one exception that he lays out. If you both agree that for a limited time you want to be more free to focus on prayer, maybe there's some big decision you're facing or you're in some very really painful season of life and you need to pray and fast, then you can agree to abstain within marriage but only for a limited time because Satan is always prowling around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. And he knows that we all have an inherent weakness to this temptation. And he doesn't strike wherever strong, he strikes wherever weak. So he exploits it. He exploits our vulnerability here. So what we see developing as we begin to study 1 Corinthians 7 is this portrait of a a. Godly, loving, Christ centric marriage as the key alternative to sexual immorality. Can you see how cultivating marriages like this would would help strengthen us against sexual immorality and sexual temptation? Rather than merely resisting temptation, we can pursue the positive counterpart, which is godly marriage and marital intimacy. You know, we teach, or we, many of us want, if the school systems are going to do sex ed, we want them to do abstinence only. But I'm not sure that's actually the most constructive way. It probably should be ideal, in an ideal perfect world, it would be biblical teaching about singleness and marriage. Because abstinence only is just a negative, it's just a don't do that. And there's really no power or strength against temptation if all we have is the don't do that. What we need is the alternative. Instead of doing that, pursue this, this godly, glorious, awesome vision of marriage that God lays out and has designed. Or this godly, glorious vision of singleness that God has laid out and designed. So if you're married, if you ever feel that pang of temptation to any form of sexual immorality, a lustful look, a destructive click or swipe, an overly intimate conversation with somebody, not your spouse, whatever it may be, if you feel any pang of temptation, pivot and turn that energy into a pursuit of marital intimacy. Buy some flowers. Send your spouse a text. Give a call. Plan a date. Somehow move closer to your spouse. Now, some of you must be asking yourselves, we should all be asking ourselves, what about people who aren't married? What about people who are single, divorced, who've been abandoned in their marriages, who are widowed? What about people who don't have marital intimacy as an option? Well, Paul has a lot to say about this, but it's not within the scope of our passage today. The passages we're going to be looking at on into the summer have a lot to say about that. And I think you're going to find a lot of it perhaps really surprising if you haven't studied this before. But verses 6 and 7 kind of are a springboard into it, and I'll I'll read these as sort of a teaser of what's to come. After all this instruction, Paul says in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He was single. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. So we'll end with this idea, which will link us to the next passage next time. In relation to these things, God gives two gifts to his people. Okay, you don't get both gifts, you get one or the other. To some he gives the gift of marriage. To others he gives the gift of singleness. Married Christians are to apply themselves to pleasing their spouses. And in that pursuit, that application, they protect themselves, strengthen their vulnerability to sexual temptation. Single Christians, as we will see as we continue this study, are to apply themselves directly to pleasing the Lord. And in that pursuit, in that application, they strengthen their vulnerability to sexual temptation. And I'll just read, this is our last passage, zooming ahead a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 and on, just to give you a teaser of what's to come. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, we can't go into that passage today, but we're going to get there before long. The bottom line for today is this. Either gift that we have, marriage or singleness, in the face of a sexually unhinged culture where sexual temptation is always uh, just around the corner from any one of us at any time, The way out that God provides, the way out of sexual temptation, is the pursuit of pleasing another. The pursuit of pleasing your wife. The pursuit of pleasing your husband. The pursuit of pleasing the Lord. So I hope you'll come back. Come back next week because this is a sustained line of thought that we're going to study for several weeks. And there are glories here, there are surprises here. And it's fascinating. And I think it'll strengthen our marriage, it'll strengthen our singleness. It'll strengthen our approach to those that we hope to disciple and encourage in their marriage and their singleness and their walk with the Lord. It'll help us to understand our culture we're living in, what's going wrong. It'll help us understand how to be the church. So commit to come back for this study through 1 Corinthians 7. Let's pray. Father, thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write such practical instruction for us. Lord, help us to bring our lives into submission under your word. To orient ourselves and our relationships according to what we see in your word. And for anyone among us who is caught up in sexual immorality, weak in their vulnerability to the temptation, unable to get on their feet, unable to turn away from them, and I pray that you, through the power of the gospel, would free them from that. Free them from that so they can please others, especially you. In Jesus' name, amen.